0: We're in the book of Matthew, and he has organized his biography of Jesus in a very intentional way. He wants to set before us Jesus as Messiah. And so he begins his book by having a genealogy to show that Jesus actually came from the right lines of the people of Israel. And then he begins to share the story of the birth of the Christ child with um, The story of how Jesus is born and shows how now God has actually come down and is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And he points to the prophetic work of John the Baptist and, and how all of these things are tied together in a very intentional way. And then he has this dramatic little scene where Jesus goes into the desert and shows his authority over Satan and forces of evil. Then he begins to preach and call his first disciples and heal the sick. And then we get to chapter 5, and we've been in it for a few weeks. Chapter 5 is the first of five discourses or teachings of Jesus that Matthew has organized his book using literary markers like repetitive words and things to show us where he starts and stops so that he can. We, he's kind of setting up This is the layout of Jesus, what he did in three years, that compares to the five books of Moses in the Torah. That Jesus is greater than anyone who has come before. And then Jesus begins to teach us in chapter 5 some things about the kingdom of heaven that just absolutely freak us out, to be honest. It's exactly opposite of the way we think it ought to work. It's not meritorious at all. It's not based on what you can earn or how good you can be. In fact, blessed are the poor and the hungry and the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It just, is, it's just rocks their boat. We, it doesn't shock us as much anymore because we're familiar with these words, but if we could somehow remove ourselves from the familiarity, we would understand this is not the way we think the kingdom of heaven will go. Then he talked about how there's a mission for people, how we're to be salt and light. And last week, we talked about, Ruth came and taught us on what it looks like for to be on mission, to be salt and to be light. And now, he wants to get real specific with you. And if if the truth be known, this is not a message, this is not stuff you want to read your kids. I mean, he is going to get down in it. He's going to talk about some things, cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. He's going to talk about sex and how destructive it can be. And as he does that, he begins to deal with how we are to live because we are in the kingdom. First, Jesus has said, the kingdom is different than you think, and the people that are in are different than you would imagine. And then he starts to say, I not only disagree with how the law is taught, I disagree with how it's applied. So Jesus begins to deal with moral evil and moral goodness, and he does not begin by soft speech. I mean, he plunges immediately into the guts of human existence. He talks about raging anger and contempt and hatred for people, he talks about obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, hitting one another, suing cursing coercing he just lays it out for us Dallas Willard said this the aim of the sermon the sermon on the mount where we are is to help people come to hopeful and realistic terms with their lives here on earth by clarifying in concrete terms the nature of the kingdom in which they are now invited by Jesus's call repent for your life in the kingdom of the heavens is now one of your options. Repent and surrender and watch this life unfold that is, that is quite amazing. E- and each of these separate parts, as you if you were to open up your Bible and look at it, you would see, oh, the fulfillment of the law, murder, adultery, divorce, oh, I, I mean, it's a bam, 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 bam. Each of those separate parts have to be kind of looked at in a context of the whole. So I don't know why it's arranged this way. This is so fun for me to be able to say, I didn't divide the sermon up this time. It's Jay's fault. <laughs> and he's out of town, so I can say that. It's, he, but for some reason, we were going really slow, and you know, we were taking just a small section of time, and then all of a sudden, I got this one. It's like verse 17 to the end of the chapter. So here we go. We're going to do our best to do it. And each of these separate parts needs to be understood in light of the single purpose of the sermon, which is to explain to us life in the kingdom of the heavens and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is going to turn the Pharisees' understanding of the kingdom of heaven on its head with the Beatitudes, and then he makes it clear what our mission is Then he goes against the Pharisees' interpretation. And next, in chapter 6 and 7, he'll go against the practice of the Pharisees. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll do our best. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for the instruction of your word. Now, Holy Spirit, would you bring some clarity? Uh, There's a dump truck full of stuff that's about to get dumped into our midst, and I just pray that you'd use it somehow. Apply conviction where it's needed, encouragement where it's needed, and a greater understanding of how much Jesus loves us in each of us. And God, I'm mindful today of the Sims family, Cindy's year-and-a-half-long battle with cancer ending yesterday. Pray for Bob, his boys, their families, as they deal with the loss. We are happy for Cindy. The suffering has ended and all things have been made right. Can't wait to see her again there. But in the midst of the loss, we just pray for the Sims family. God, please, please watch over them. Encourage them, please. In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17, Jesus has now kind of laid out what you think the kingdom of heaven is like and what what our mission is, and now he's going to lay out for us the source of authority for how the kingdom of heaven is lived. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, he says in Matthew 5.17, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, and that word for truly I tell you is literally, yes, amen, I say. And it's... It's, yes, amen, I say. You remember we talked about amen a couple of weeks ago, how it's not just the end, or I'm done, or talk to you later. It's actually an agreement to, and it's a drawing of attention. Jesus is saying here several times, in fact, 14 times in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, yes, amen, I say to you. Or sometimes it's, verily, verily, if you get an old King James, My version says, truly I say to you, he's going to use this over and over again, for truly I tell you, there it is, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of his least of his commands and teaches others accordingly, Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven notice they still get in they just got a bad seat at the banquet by the elevator but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you that unless your righteousness and here's this statement that flows over everything he's about to say For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The law is not the source of our rightness before God. But it is a course that helps us understand where we're supposed to go. And Jesus is so intentional about this that he says not the smallest letter Not the least stroke of a pen. Now, let me show you what the the smallest letter here. In Hebrew is a jot. In Greek, it's an iota. You know, not even an iota. That little saying, you didn't know you knew a Greek word. That's the smallest letter in Greek. And jot and iota, this smallest letter, very small little indentions and things that are going on in the Hebrew language and in Greek He's saying the very smallest details are still particular. to. They're going to come about. The promises are going to happen. And then the least stroke of a pen is a tittle. Now, this is amazing. The difference between two words there, Beth and calf, are just that little hook. I mean, the word in Greek here is is literally horn. Because because it's, it's, it doesn't have the Hebrew tittle word, so it's using Greek words to show just the little stroke that goes beyond it. Jesus is saying the smallest details of what's going on are still important to me. And the Bible becomes our source of truth until he returns. The Bible is inspired, and therefore it's authoritative over our circumstances. The Bible points to Jesus and brings about change as we submit ourselves to that. This is a 2,000-year-plus struggle. I know inside of your modern minds you are thinking, but Steve, it's so old. Well, just go home and read the Sermon on the Mount again. Look how great our society could be if we could just do away with some of the anger we're so free to express. It says here that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not shocking to you, but it should be. The most righteous people we've ever known in terms of the law of the Old Testament are the Pharisees. They kept every single law. They missed the heart of the law. That's what Jesus would talk to them about, but they kept the letter of the law they had over 600 rules that they would do to make sure that they stayed as righteous as they could if they saw a woman coming they would drop their head and cross the street to keep from looking at them to make sure that they didn't look on a woman with lust they were legalistic beyond anybody you know and they were no fun because they thought they were gaining righteousness in God's eyes. Jesus says the harshest things he says in the New Testament, he says to this group of people. You wash the outside of your cup so that everybody can see how clean it is, but the inside of it is filthy. And our righteousness has to surpass that. We've got to understand that there's something else going on, and it's not just the outward experience. Romans 3 blows this whole idea of righteousness up by this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness, same word, of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified, that's actually the same word for righteousness, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Is that the the way to rightness, to exceed the rightness is faith in Christ. It is offered freely to all. There's no difference. Everybody here's sinned and fallen short, and grace is extended. So this is this is a again, the, the, the kingdom of heaven, as the Pharisees understood it, is just getting blown up. And then Jesus says, let me, let me get real particular with you. Now, as we work through these things, I'm gonna spend some time on a couple and I'll skip a few, and but there's some. Topics here that might come to mind. And I would just say, if as I'm talking about something, and let's say I talk about oaths, and when I talk about, skip mostly I'll skip over it. But if I, if I say something about, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and you realize, oh my gosh, I, th- I think I lied yesterday. If something comes to your mind, make note, just because I skip it doesn't mean you can. And these six, contrast, this great inversion of what the kingdom of heaven is like now is kind of laid out for us where we're going to talk about murder, adultery, divorce, vows, injury, hate, and love. He begins with this one. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, and there it is, yes, amen, I say, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're, if you're giving an offering at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and, and offer your gift. Now, this sounds like not that big a deal. I mean, if you're here and you realize, oh, I got something, I got, I got something. You just pull out your phone and text them. I mean, hey, I'm sorry about blowing up last night. Really bad. Bet on me. Sorry. That's not the big a deal. But think about in first century Palestine. They've saved money for a long time to make a trip that was very dangerous. They've traveled to a place where they can go to the altar and then exchange their money and got ripped off by the people running the temple, walked in, about to give the priest the little lamb, and then said, oh, Now I'm supposed to leave the gift. And I don't think there's people who can kind of hold your place in line. I think that's a new thing. You can't like, hey, could you hold this for me? I'll be right back. Because you ain't going to be right back. You're going to travel several days, maybe several weeks, and go back and make this thing right. saying that not only anger, but when you go to Raqqa, it's kind of this contemptuous attitude. Of, of anger says I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't even care that you're there. I mean, it's, it's um, and then if you go to you, you fool, you move from anger to contempt to malice. I'm not going to say the best expression for you fool in our language, but it would be stupid B. And then gen- you'd use the B word dependent upon the gender. Or are you F an idiot? This is as foul as we can address each other. Now, think about this. Almost everybody here experienced something like that where people were talking to one another like that this past week. This is not uncommon. That we allow our anger and our differences and our opinions to so divide us that it goes to name calling and then character assassination. And he's saying, You can't do that. This is such a big deal that if you've saved money and you've traveled weeks and you remember that something's wrong between you and another person, make it right. Because it's not about really what you do to gain God's favor. It's how your faith is expressed in relationship with the people around you. So he continues on in adultery. You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, think about this if you could get anger under control and the lust factor in your life under control, how much would our culture change? How much would it change? I mean, how did he know 2,000 years ago that he could name the top two just like that? And This is, this is quite incredible. I remember, I remember reading this for the first time and thinking that I should have read more before I trusted Jesus because I didn't know that you, it, it had to do with looking. I had no idea that it was this. And this sometimes gets, it's, gets misunderstood because it's, it's hard to pick up the nuance in this command, but it's, it's to look upon a woman or a man with the purpose of lusting. It's not, it's not temptation. Temptation is not a sin. Christ himself endured temptation and yet was without sin. It's not looking, being tempted, and then leaving it. It's deciding, I want to look with lust and going for that purpose. I mean, it sounds exactly like pornography if you think about it. You go to pornography for a reason. And that reason is lust. And Jesus tackles violence and sex right away. There's a lot more I could say, but I'm going to move on. Divorce. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. Now, this sounds also, this is an amazingly uh, protective statement for women this passage you don't you don't sense that it doesn't sound like that but the truth of the matter is is if if I were married um, in the first century in the Hebrew culture and I wanted a different wife all I had to do was write out a pink slip that said you're fired you displease me I have to give no reason other than my own displeasure I don't like the way you walk I don't like the way you talk I don't like the way you burn the toast And there were just the most trivial reasons for divorce back then. And Jesus is saying, man, what God has joined together in relationship, you shouldn't just tear it apart so easily. Now, there's more about divorce coming as we work our way through um, the book of Matthew. It'll come up again. This is speaking about the ability of a man or a woman just to get rid of someone because they do not please them. And it's not an accident that Jesus speaks about divorce after he spoke about lust and he spoke about anger. Because those two things are usually at the heart of why marriages fail. Verse 33, he goes, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. That... The understanding of this context, as I see it, is: is you're not just you're not just promising to do something that you say. You're doing it in such a way to impress people. You're trying to manipulate the situation and draw attention to your ability to keep the promise. And verse thirty-seven says, "A simple yes and no is enough." That should be good enough. Now, that doesn't mean, please don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that you should never sign a contract. You should never have to do those kinds of things in our culture today. It simply means you're not looking for ways to get out of things that you said yes to or to do things that you've said no to. James 5 says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is simple yes or no. Then he talks about revenge, an eye for an eye. This was the law of the land. You understand, this was was the law. You harm me, I harm you in equal or greater measure. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. We talked about this before. The fact that it very intentionally says right cheek means That it's not a life-threatening situation Um, it's not it's not so much personal injury as it is insult with a little bit of violence to it a kingdom response would be to remain vulnerable to try to help in that situation and to respond when more is required now this passage can be misused because people can kind of Use it to say, well, you're supposed to go. If it says go a mile, and you're supposed to go a second mile, so you're gonna, you know, I, I borrowed your lawnmower. I need to borrow your hedge trimmers too, or whatever. But don't don't be silly about this. It, it, it's what would be appropriate. If you would not endanger your family, and and someone asks you to do something, then that makes sense. But if you're going to endanger others, then maybe it might not be appropriate to say yes to something. If I'm supposed to be at my grandson's birthday party today at two, who just turns nine, and you ask me, can we meet at 1:30?" I'm going to say, not today. Because I've already given my yes to something else, right? So it's not like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be here, but they asked me to help, so I guess I got to help. Come on, it's not, it's not flush your brain down the toilet here. What's appropriate? The question is not, did I do what Jesus illustrated, but am I becoming the type of person that Jesus is describing here? If I owe money to a shopkeeper whose goods I've already consumed... I'm not at liberty to give money I earn to pay the shopkeeper back to someone else just because they ask it of me. That's not appropriate. Are you with me? Okay. This means yes. This means no. It's a lot here, a lot. And then we get to the final one. This is where I want to slow down. Because this is, we talk about here all the time The three loves, love God, love your neighbor, love one another. And that's what it means to to be a follower of Christ as we define it. A disciple, an apprentice of Jesus is someone who organizes their life in such a way that they are working towards letting these three loves become a dominant influence in all that they do and say. Love God, love your neighbor, love one another. But it's not, and it's misunderstood sometimes, it's not a destination. Oh, I'm 640 now, I have arrived. No, you haven't. You've just agreed to be part of this community for a while and attempt to walk with Jesus around the three loves. But there's a graduate course. I was just talking to somebody working on their doctorate degree, and I was like, Ooh, I'm glad that ain't me. So good luck with it. Um, there's a graduate course for 640 discipleship, and it's the fourth love. And I've showed this to you before. I, I call it 640X. It's love your enemies. Love your enemies. Yes, it's difficult to love God with all that you are. It's difficult to love your neighbor, especially some of the neighbors you have. And it's difficult to love one another in this room. But it's graduate level to get after loving your enemies. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The highest act of this kind of love is to intercede for them. And, to, and this word for love here is just to, to will the good of them. Doesn't mean you've got an ooey gooey feeling about your enemies, doesn't mean that you've got this emotional thing that comes along with it. It means that you have decided in your will, a choice has been made that I will work for their good, I will pursue their good. I will do what I can to make sure that they get it. And if you can begin to do this, guess what? Your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. Like that. Not perfectly, not all the time. I know there's some people in your life. We talked about them a couple weeks ago. We're not going to go back on that language. There's just people in your life that are difficult to love. But this is the call and how the kingdom of heaven works. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's called common grace. It's extended to all peoples. And what that means is everyone you see is created in the image of God, and there's goodness that you can get from them. There's things that you can learn from them. There's nobody you can completely dismiss and say, I have contempt for you. I have malice towards you. Because you understand that they are a child of God created in His image. They may be going the opposite direction. They might not want anything to do with God, but that doesn't mean they're not without worth in His eyes. They have value. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Let's be honest, men and women. Most of our love extended are those who love us. That's where most of our love is going. That's where mine's going. And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And the word for pagan sounds really bad, but it's just people outside of God's family. And then it says, be perfect, therefore. This is how he finishes this section. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as you hear that, you're going, ah, man. Surely he he does not mean that. Well, the word is teleos. And properly understood, it means to reach the goal to come to the end, to be finished, to be mature, to be complete, the end of a term. The command here is actually in the tense that you shall be perfect. Nineteen times in the New Testament, this word teleos shows up in the New Testament, and it's only translated perfect eight times. I think it would, be, would take us off the I think what we do is we hear this and we say, oh, that's not for me, I can't be perfect. Well, of course you can't. But you can be mature. You can allow the work of Christ to develop in you in such a way, the word of God to shape you in such a way that you are less angry today than you were a year ago. That you are less prone to speak untruth to people now than you were a year ago you can do that you can be working towards that that's the sense of what's going on here and the tre- and the big test for it is that we would love our enemy we would love them will their good we would do good towards them we would bless them which we talked about earlier about but what it means to be to bless others and we would pray for them we would ask For their well-being we would extend forgiveness and pursue reconciliation we would love the people who piss us off simple enough to say what that might look like really is that we would a couple of things what is it I think two one is overlook offense when you can Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes things happen to you. It's not that big a deal. Just let it go. Just let it go. It made you angry at the moment, but it's not that big a deal. Overlook it. Let it go. And then when it's not, it's too big a deal, then you need to forgive. And by forgive, we need to identify who we're angry with. Sometimes it's hard. We end up finding out that we're not really angry as we thought with that other person. We're really angry for us for getting into that situation. Identify who you're angry with. Determine what they owe you. What's the debt that you feel like this person owes you? And be specific. And then cancel that debt. Let it go. Release them. Say under your breath when you see them, You don't owe me anymore. I release you. I have done, I've told you this in the past. I have done this with you. You have, you have angered me, some of you. And when you came in, I was angry. Why don't they go somewhere else? Just being honest. I'm not saying it's right. Then I'll remember, wait a minute, <laughs> didn't you forgive them? The fact that I'm still angry means I didn't, so I release them again. And as they come in, I say, I release you. I release you. You don't owe me. And then I dismiss the case. And if it keeps coming up as I see them, if I'm angry with you and then I see you and I'm still angry or it brings up, I think about what you owe me, then the case has not been dismissed. I re up the ante of offer forgiveness. I I release you. If it's really hard, it keeps coming back, keeps coming back, then I'll talk with them about it. And tell them I'm I'm in this process of trying to do that. This kind of love is the highest standard to love your enemies. 640X. I showed you this before and I talked about it because I'm just fascinated that this kind of things happens in our our world today. But there are, th- there are critters among us, very, very small, that are called extremophiles. Those extremophiles are, are existing in the harshest environments on our planet. Really deep, really cold, really dry, really hot. These extremophiles exist in the, in the most harsh environments there are. And what's amazing is when science decided, let's give a name to this group of critters that exist in extreme environments, they called them extremophiles, which from the Latin means extremis, which means extreme, and phileo, which is Greek, which means love. He's, basically, science decided these critters are extreme lovers. Extreme lovers. That's what I think Jesus is calling us to, to be salt and light in the most extreme environments and love our enemies and be extremophiles. This is the Westgate mascot. This little critter is called a tardigrade. You can actually, this just shows, just proves to you, you can get anything online you want. <laughs> A stuffed tardigrade. Tardigrade is the, the toughest of the extremophiles. I've showed you this guy before. He's cute there, but in reality, they're probably pretty ugly in real life. <laughs> I know, but they are incredibly tough. They can can exist in altitude of over almost 20,000 feet, 6,000 meters, and they can go as deeper than 15,000 feet. You put them in a laboratory freezer at 80 degrees below Celsius, 20 minutes later you bring them out and they take a little while to thaw out and then they start hopping around or moving around. They don't really hop. I mean, I guess if it's small enough it's hopping. They can get cooled down to almost absolute zero and survive it, which is 459 degrees minus Fahrenheit. And you can expose them to 284 degrees Fahrenheit of steam, and they don't die. These are the toughest critters on the planet, tardigrades. Jesus is asking you to be one, kind of. An extreme lover. I have a present for two people in our congregation here today. These are little finger tardigrades. (laughs) So here's what I need. Who has completed the 640 process this spring? Who in the room completed it this spring? Okay, I got two there. I got two here. Okay, what date? Huh? A month ago? June 8th? Whew. You're a winner, dude, here. <laughs> Back there, what do you got? May? That's kind of close, so you, can you be more specific? May 20th? You know what, they'll share. Um, I, don't, I don't wanna throw it that far. It's going to be up here. Okay, come on up. Yeah, you can get it. Come on up. A little tardigrade. Way to go. (laughs) Extreme lovers, you will exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You'll capture what Jesus is trying to create. If you'll allow this process. Now I know some of, we're all at different places. I am under conviction that my anger is still not in control. The past two weeks prepping for this, I'm still angry a lot. And if you're watching, the world gives you lots of reasons to be angry. If you want to be, I don't want to be. How about you? Where is it that you need to start to become an extreme lover? Because he who has been forgiven much loves much. And the reality of my anger is not because people do stuff wrong. It's because I'm arrogant and I think I know the right way to do everything. And so when people don't do it, they disappoint me. When they disappoint me, I get mad at them. That's a horrible way to live. I don't think that's what Jesus has for me for the next few years, however many. I don't think whatever you're stuck in is what he has for you either. Tardigrades, extreme lovers, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. One of the great things about Jesus is that he made provision for our shortcomings. And then he left word pictures for the communities who follow him to do on a regular basis so they would be reminded that they are not to live a life of guilt and shame, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has set us free from the penalty of sin and offered it if we'll receive it by faith. And communion is about that. Communion is about embracing this life of faith. And so we get a reminder today about it team's going to come and do a song about just giving God permission to search you and and understand what's going on and, and revealing something that needs to maybe be revealed in you. And then there's a song at the end, and I would ask you to come and get the elements, but wait until the second song. When they sing the song, it is finished. And you can take the elements with the declaration that Christ has done all that is needed for us to be people, children of the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. God, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for being clear and not backing away from what is asked of us. And I ask now, it's, it's been a mess. We've, we've jumped around and touched on so many different things. It could have been ten sermons. But I think there's something that you want to say in the mess. So would you be specific with us? As we invite you to search us, would you put your finger on anything that might be holding us back from you? And then would you give us the faith and the grace to seeing it is finished with the kind of conviction that embraces that truth. We say no to shame. We say no to the kind of guilt that brings death. And we say yes to your freedom and your forgiveness in Jesus. Use this time for... Your glory and our good, please.